pray that the upshot of our service and this message would be glory to Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the dominion forever and ever. And I pray that a new, deep, transformed and transforming love would produce a kind of hospitality, radical, end-time, Christ-exalting, sin-covering hospitality in our church. So, grant that your holy word would now be heard and that the Holy Spirit would come and open hearts as he opens my mouth and we would be changed in all the ways that would magnify Christ. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. What's driving this message is a desire for Christ to be magnified in the way that married people and single people show hospitality to each other. This is a spillover from several weeks ago on singleness. Let me put the goal another way. If it's true that, as I tried to show in that message a while back on singleness, if it's true that God's family comes into being by new birth and by faith, and that family is more central and more lasting than families that come into being by marriage and procreation and adoption, if that's true, then it follows that the way that spiritual family relates to each other is crucial in displaying to the world that we are driven not simply by natural relations, but by supernatural relations. We're not like the world. We put supernatural workings above natural workings. And we put supernaturally wrought relations above naturally wrought relations. That's our priority. And so when it comes to hanging out on Memorial Day, that figures. So what's driving this message is that there would be a Christ-exalting, fresh, new way of doing hospitality, married to single, and single to married. That's where we're going. Jesus said, Whoever gives one of these little ones a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Amazing. We know that he said also, love your enemies. And Paul interpreted it, Romans 12, 20, 
give a cup of cold water to your enemy. That'll get a reward. Sure it will. Amen. That's Christ-like and Christ-exalting. That's not what Jesus said here in Matthew 10, 42. He said, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water precisely because he is a disciple will by no means lose his reward. In other words, show simple acts of kindness to believers precisely because Christ is their King. Because they're a follower of Jesus. See, look into the eye of another believer and see Christ's allegiance. And for that, love them like you love nobody. Oh, how we should esteem Christ so highly that anybody that takes His name on their brain, their heart, and says, I'm His, should cause us to be amazed and in love such that we invite them to our house and want to be together. Just a few more words by way of introduction. I'll warn you, this message is about 60% introduction. So if you think, he's never going to get to the test. That's not true unless I faint or drop dead. So hang on. I'm packing a lot of things I just want to say into the introduction. I think it's relevant. On Thursday, I was in Deerfield, Illinois, and I preached a message to a lot of pastors, three or four hundred pastors, called The Triumph of the Gospel in the new heavens and the new earth. And preparing for that message stirred up in me so many questions. And I was only able to address them a little bit. Questions like, why did God create a material universe and create people in His own image with bodies that have drives like hunger and thirst and sex and souls with longings for friendship. Why did He make us that way? If His goal was that He be honored and glorified, why not just make spectacular souls? that can't even communicate with other people, but see Him clearly and give Vesuvius-like praise to Him like the angels do. Bless the Lord, all you His angels, you mighty ones who do His Word, obeying the voice of His Word, and they don't have any bodies. So what's up with our bodies? They really are a problem. That's the kind of question. Because the Bible teaches, guess what? He's not going to throw them away. He's going to raise them from the dead. 
God is not a Platonist who says, yuck, as soon as we can shed this thing, the better. Well, you won't shed it. It will be made new. And you will always have a body, a spiritual body, strange, mysterious kind of body that can eat fish and seem to just come and go in time capsule-like ways. So why did he make bodies? Trees, ground, water, fire, wind, lions, lambs, lilies, birds, bread, wine. And there are more than one answer to that question. But I will give you one that relates to marriage and singleness. God made bodies and material things because when they are rightly seen, and even seeing, as we know it, is one of those creations, when they are rightly seen and rightly used, God's glory is more fully known and more fully displayed than if He hadn't made them. The heavens are telling the glory of God, Psalm 19.1. Consider the birds of the air and the lilies of the field, and you will know more of providence and love and care, Matthew 6.26 and 28. From the beginning of time they have seen in the things that are made His invisible attributes, His eternal power and deity, Romans 1.20. Look at marriage and behold Christ and the church. Ephesians 5:23 to 25. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you declare the Lord's death until he comes. Whatever you do, whether you eat or whether you drink, do all to the glory of God. The material world is not an end in itself. It is designed to display God's glory and awaken our hearts to know Him and value Him more. It's all about worship. You have a body to make God look good. Physical reality is good. God made it as a revelation of His glory. He intends for us to sanctify it in an act of worship with it, whether in the kitchen or in the bedroom. That is, He intends for us to see it, these physical things, see it in relation to Him and use it in a way that makes much of Him so that doing that gives us joy. All of that has a direct bearing on marriage and singleness. Here's what it does. It protects us from idolizing sex and food as gods and it protects us from fearing sex and food as idols.
We dare not idolize them. They are not God. God is God. And we dare not fear them as though God hadn't made them, designed them for His glory. They're not evil. They are instruments of worship. They are ways to make Christ look good. And I'd like you to turn, not to the text, this is still introduction. Turn with me to 1 Timothy 4. And I'm taking you here because I think I would say, I know I would say, and I think it's true, It is one of the most important texts in the Bible on the meaning of sex and the meaning of food and all other physical appetites. This text that we're going to read now is one of the most, if not the most important text on how to manage sex and hunger and find the meaning in it God had designed. There's an error and a heresy he's addressing. You listen, see if you see what it is. This is verses 1 to 5 of 1 Timothy 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. Now what would that be? Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Who, here's what they do, here's what these demon-like teachers are teaching. Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God made, God created, to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth is what I'm trying to preach right now. For everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the Word of God and prayer. That's important for real life. Sex and food are the two issues there. Marriage and food, sex is the issue, clearly, because he's worried about these appetites. Whoever this false teacher is, says, well, whoa, marriage you just can give vent to way too much appetite there. Food, abstain. And the apostle comes along and says, that's demonic. Sounds so good, right? Sounds so self-controlled. Sounds so ascetic. It's hellish, Paul says. Strange. Another view of hellishness. So what's God's solution if there's a threat of idolatry in sex and if there's a threat of idolatry in food, addiction and lust? What's God's solution? It's not abstinence in marriage and it's not abstaining from food as though it were evil. So what's God say? It's real clear what he says. Everything created by God is good. 
Nothing is to be rejected if received with Godward, real, authentic, Godward thanksgiving. Because in that act of thanksgiving, it is made holy. It's not intrinsically holy. It is sanctified, set apart, made holy by the Word and prayer. You make food holy by using it according to the Word of God. In Christ-dependent prayer. And you make sex holy by using it according to the Word of God. In Christ-dependent prayer. Which is different for single and married people. And they both can sanctify their sexuality. It will look differently. All that, by way of introduction, I'm still not done with it, to make clear that in everything I've said about marriage and in everything I've said about singleness, we would see marriage as a physical parable of covenant love between Christ and His church, and we would see singleness as a physical parable of the spiritual nature of God's family that grows not by Marriage and regeneration and, I'm so sorry, marriage and, and procreation and adoption, but rather grows by regeneration, new birth and faith. That's what singleness can show. Don't idolize marriage. Don't idolize singleness. Don't be afraid of marriage. Don't be afraid of Singleness. I've heard enough feedback to know some of the kinds of dangers. Marriage and celibacy can be idols. Both of them, not one of them. Spouses can worship each other. They can worship sex. They can worship children. And they can worship double income, no kid buying power. Singles can worship autonomy and independence. Singles can look on marriage as a second-class Christian compromise with sexual drive. Married people can look upon singleness as a mark of immaturity and irresponsibility and incompetence and even homosexuality. And I'm trying to avoid all that. What I'm trying to clarify is that there are Christ-exalting ways to be married and there are Christ-exalting ways to be single. There are ways to use our bodies, our appetites in marriage and singleness that make much of Christ. I'm going to stick in one more little introductory comment because I really want to deal with 1 Corinthians 7, 9 because I know that I struggled with it in my last single days, and others do too. Paul said, if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Now take note, preceding verse, he's talking to men and women. 
better to marry than to burn with passion. Here's the one thing that I want to say about it. When a person seeks to be married, knowing that as a single, he or she would burn with passion, that does not have to mean marriage is simply a channel for sexual drive. Paul would never have said that in view of Ephesians 5.25. Instead, when a person marries, and let me just address the men, because it's easier to say it with one pronoun than two. When a person marries, he takes his sexual desire. And I'm, I'm talking about a man who read that verse and said, that's me. I burn. Every picture I see, it awakens desire. Every thought about possibility of marriage fills me with longing. I can hardly not think about this. That's okay. That's normal. Not every single is like that. It's not type everybody, but some are. Paul wouldn't have said it if some weren't. I was. <laughs> okay, so is marriage just a sexual release? Is that all I'm doing here? No. When a man like that reads this verse and then prayerfully Ask God to lead him to the godly woman with whom he will spend his life. He takes his sexual desire and he brings it into conformity to God's word in marriage. Two, he subordinates it to higher patterns of love and care. Three, he transposes the music of physical pleasure into the music of spiritual worship. Four, he listens for the echoes of God's goodness in every nerve. Five, he seeks to double his pleasure by making her joy his joy. And six, he gives thanks to God from the bottom of his heart because he knows he never deserved one minute of this pleasure. And thus everything is changed. He's not an animal. He's not a stallion. He's a godly man with the way God made him. That's the end of the introduction. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. The upshot of these 11... Messages now, 12, I think, so far is marriage is beautiful, primarily as a parable of covenant-keeping love in and out of romance, till death do us part, and singleness is a magnificent calling of God for wholehearted devotion to Him, displaying to the world there's a better, big, bigger family. 
It's created by new birth and faith, not marriage and procreation. That's what I'm trying to say. And I want us to show hospitality to each other. Because if it's true that singleness is a high calling, it's also a hard one. In our culture especially. In any culture. And how we treat each other across the lines of marriage and singleness is a very big deal to God and Christ. Chapter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Peter knows that the Messiah has come. The end has arrived. Kingdom of God is here. Therefore, the consummation of all things could sweep the world in a very short time. That was true then. It's true now. There should be a sense of urgency about us. So he says, second half of the verse, 7. Therefore, be sober or self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. What do you need as the end draws near and urgency is enlarged? Prayer. Why? Two reasons, at least. One, you need to stay close to the one you're going to see any month. You don't want to meet Jesus as a stranger. I promise you, you don't want to meet Jesus as a stranger. Prayer is where we deal with Him. We love Him. We talk to Him. We get to know Him over the Word. How are you doing? Do you know Him? Do you converse with Him daily so that you won't be taken off guard like, Whoa, I didn't know you were like that. That's the first reason. And the second reason is, In the last days, the stresses will be huge on marriage, singleness, businesses, children, and not many will stand. He will shorten the days if the elect themselves might be swept away. That's how hard it's going to be to be a Christian in the last days. Oh, if you're not a praying person, you will be. It would be good to form the habit now, Peter says. Verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Love is paramount, he says. It will be needed in the last day. Why? We need each other. When the pressures are huge on a relationship, pressures are huge from the world, pressures are huge because each other sins, we got to have a way to cover them. I mean, are, you, are we going to be swept away in anger at each other because of how sinful we are? And guess what? We're going to sin against each other at the last day. Otherwise, this verse wouldn't be in here. Love covers a multitude of sins as the last day comes. We're going to need each other big time. And if we say, I don't like it when you do that, I'm out of here. You're going to lose what you need. Love is huge as the last day comes because we've got to have each other to strengthen each other's faith. To call each other back to say, that sign and wonder didn't mean what you think it means because it's a lying, demonic sign and wonder and you're about to be swept away by it. I'm grabbing you by the arm to pull you back from the flames. 
And if you've gotten mad at me because I'm a sinner, you're going to shake me off and perish. We've got to cover each other's sins in the last day, and we're in them. Singles, cover the married sins. Don't, don't leave this service saying, well, they don't do it. Cover that and pray for us. We're blind. We're blind as bats when we plan our picnics. But I hope not as blind now. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for your prayers. You know what that means? Don't depend on spontaneity for prayer. There's so many of you who do that. I'll pray when I think of it. I'll pray if there's time. I'll, I'll just pray when I feel like it. It's not what it says. It says... Be self-controlled and sober-minded for your prayers. Use your brain to plan prayer. Use your sober will. Sober means not drunk. Drunk people stumble around doing what they feel like. People who are not drunk stop on the edge of the road and walk out in front of cars and they drive down the right-hand side of the road. They are guiding their lives with some intentionality. And this says do that for prayer because it's really big at the end time. We will need God's help. So we'll pray. Verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now that's one form of the love he's just talked about. So love each other. Because love covers a multitude of sins. Now, isn't it interesting? Look at this. Isn't it interesting that he says, love covers sins and hospitality shouldn't grumble. See the connect? See the parallel? Love covers the stuff that would tend to make us grumble, right? I don't like you. <laughs> so if I have to show you hospitality, I'm going to grumble. I don't want to have her over. I don't want to have them over. They're hard to get along with. Grumble, grumble, grumble. Well, I thought you just covered that. No, you didn't. See how it's connected? The Bible is a supernatural book. It's not calling. This is not a how to win friends and influence people lifestyle lesson because you can't get rid of your grumbling. Grumbling comes from the heart. This is a work of God. You've got to have God. That's why you're praying. Lord, I'm a grumbler. I'm sorry. Please come and fill me with love to people, single people and married people, so that I'm drawn out of my self-preoccupation and thinking about others and including them in my life. That's what the end-time lifestyle of the church should look like. Karen Maines wrote a book years and years ago called Open Heart, Open Home. I love that title. Open heart, open home.
the Apostle John spoke of how our hearts are opened to others, especially those who make us grumble. Here's what he said. You can remember it because you're all familiar with John 3.16. Be as familiar with 1 John 3.16. Can you remember it that way? This is what 1 John 3.16 says. By this we know, love, that Jesus laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has this world's goods, like a picnic basket or something, anybody has this world's goods and sees his brother single, married, in need, yet closes his heart against him, how can the love of God abide in him? In other words, our hearts are opened to brothers and sisters in need by being loved by Jesus on the cross. If your heart is not at least leaning towards opening to others, your problem is not that you don't have the right list, but that you don't see the cross as clearly as you should. You don't feel loved by Jesus as much as you should. Verse 10. What are we doing when we get together? Married or single or both? Verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. I cannot tell you how much I love that phrase. Stewards of God's varied grace. What is a steward? Um, manager, custodian, warden, distributor, servant. It means you don't show hospitality out of your own resources. You're managing grace that came down. Grace came down, heart went open, grace flows out. And you, what are you? Steward. Steward. This is so encouraging. Because some of you are sitting there saying, my apartment is so small. Or, I don't have a personality at all. Like, yours or, or the really outgoing people in this church. I, you wouldn't want to spend any time with me. That's a great response because it makes you such a candidate for grace. It's about grace. It's not about you and your personality. It's not about you and your, the size of your apartment. You know what? If you're feeling that way, you're just wonderful because you're not going to intimidate anybody. Most of us are kind of fretful when we go to some house because they're going to, you know, will I sound good enough or will I wear the right stuff or will I stay too long or will I eat too much or... Oh, that God would deliver us from this kind of self-preoccupation. Because grace is what we live on. I, I'm a desperately needy sinner Every morning, every night, I just say, God, please make me a little bit useful in channeling your word and channeling your grace to others. I just want to do that. 
So I close with these uh, applications. Real obvious, I think. We have just seen the Christian virtue of hospitality, Christ-exalting strategy in the last days. Jesus calls us to this. Everybody, everybody, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Second, married people, plan your hospitality to include single people. Small groups, build them that way. Sunday dinners, picnics, holiday celebrations. I knew you'd be sitting there, Ross. <laughs> and I knew you wouldn't mind if I said this. Because Ross Charks, over there, was single once upon a time. And I don't know how many years, Ross, but we loved it. I'll tell you, we loved it. He's just one of the boys. He was there at Thanksgiving, and he was there at Christmas, and uh, he was just the single fixture at our celebrations. I mean, the, the intimate family celebrations. He was just there because there he was, and we like him. And we, we uh, folded him into our family. If, if he wasn't there, Abraham and Barnabas and Carson and Benjamin said, where's Ross? Every, every family should have somebody, shouldn't they? It just seems so natural and good and... So that's a word to, to married folks. Think, think, think. Now, a, a word to single people, and I'm almost done. Single people, show hospitality to other single people and to married people. Perhaps it sounds odd. Invite a couple over? Weird. Really? Should it be odd? Would it not be a mark of the kind of maturity and stability that so many irrationally conclude means what singleness is? Wouldn't it be a mark of maturity and stability to fold couples in for you to take the initiative and not just the married people? We've been, Noel and I have been invited over, I don't know how many times, a couple of single gals, whatever, would you come over? We just have lots of questions we want to ask you. <laughs> so I'm done, and I close with this longing. I pray that the Lord would do this beautiful thing among us, this end-time, radical, Christ-exalting strategy of hospitality. The end of all things is at hand. Let us be sober in our prayers, for our prayers. Let's love each other and cover a multitude of sins. Let's be good stewards of varied grace that's coming down and flowing out. And let's show hospitality without grumbling. Welcome one another as God in Christ has welcomed you. Let's pray. Father, I pray that Noel and I, in the time we have left on this planet, would be good examples of this. Sunday dinners and picnics and holiday celebrations, and that right across this church on all three campuses, thousands of people would find their hearts enlarged by Christ to love this way. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.